Welcome to Brain and Event. We are delighted to be joined by Andrew Seppielli. Got a new book coming out with Oxford University Press called Pragmatist Quietism. Andrew, would you like to start with a thought experiment? Sure. Thanks very much, Mark. I'd like to start by talking about three different cases, and I want to get your thoughts on how they're like or unlike one another. So the first case comes from William James's book, Pragmatism, new word for some old ways of thinking, and it kicks off the book. And it's a case that I'm going to call Squirrel. So James and his friend, his hiking companion, right, they're going for a walk in the woods, and they see this man chasing a squirrel around a tree. And his friend says, oh, look at that, look at that guy over there running around the squirrel. And then James says, well, you know, he's not really not really running around the squirrel, right? He's chasing the squirrel around the tree, but he's not thereby going around the squirrel. And his friend says, of course he's going around the squirrel, right? First he's to the north of it, then he's to the west of it, right? Then he's to the south of it, then the east of it. And James says, no, no, but he's always in the back of it, right? He's never to the right side of it or in front of it, right? So that's an, an example of the sort of debate that James wanted to try to dissolve through his pragmatic method. It's the sort of debate that many people since then have called merely verbal or non-substantive or semantic or something like that, right? So that's what swirl, right? Here's another maybe more familiar sort of debate I'm going to call the debate socks. So imagine I'm asking my wife like, hey, I don't know where the socks are. And she says, there are some in your drawer. And I say, no, not there. And she says, no, they should be in there, right? So we're having a kind of dispute. This one does seem to be substantive. It's about whether there are socks in the drawer. Right. You can come up with many other debates that just seem like paradigmatically very substantive debates that admit of a kind of right answer. Right. And then the third case I want to talk about is familiar to many viewers and listeners. It's one that I'll call trolley. So it's basically about whether if a trolley is headed in the direction of five people about to run over them and squash them and you have an opportunity to push somebody in front of the trolley and thereby prevent the trolley from hitting the five people, but it'll squash and kill the one person. Is it the right thing to do right, to push the person in front of the trolley? So why do I mention these cases? Well, I think that most people working in metaethics or the foundations of morality who think that ordinary ethical judgments are like beliefs right? They're so-called cognitivists. They are inclined, I think, to assimilate disputes like trolley to disputes like socks, right? That they're both substantive disputes. And then they start worrying about what happens if there are no such things as rightness in the world or goodness, right? In the way that there seem to be socks in the world, right? Whereas I'm inclined to think that in crucial respects, the trolley case is much more like the world case. And so much of my case for what I call metaethical quietism is based on assimilating thing debates or episodes of inquiry like squirrel and debates or episodes of inquiry like trolley. So then a question um, arises, is a consequence of that view that ethical discussion or discussion about right action is nonsensical? that it doesn't make sense, that it's silly to have those discussions? No. So as to the theoretical consequences, like my first pass diagnosis, and this kind of gets refined as the book proceeds, my first pass diagnosis is it, it means that normative ethical disputes like 
trolley are not representational, right? That, that they don't kind of hold out the prospect of accurately representing or mapping the world in any kind of robust sense. But I try to argue that there is a difference between, on one hand, whether a dispute is representational and on the other hand, whether a dispute is worth having, right? Whether there's anything of significance up for grabs. So what I think about normative ethical disputes is that they're significant, right? They're not the kinds of things where we would say, oh, you could go either way. What's the point? What's the difference? You don't really settle them by like stipulation, right? You're not going to say like, look, let's just stipulate by wrong. It means it fails to maximize utility or something, right? You would never settle it that way. So they're significant in that way. But, but like the squirrel dispute, they're not representationals, right? So their significance inheres in something other than getting the world right in the way that like a map might do, right? So it seems like one account that you could have about morality is that there are moral facts that sketched into our universe are certain rules of conduct. A notion that people have inherent dignity, that it's wrong to violate their rights, that maximizing pleasure is one of those things that's caked into reality, that you must be virtuous. But someone can say, well, when it comes to other things, I can taste them, I can smell them, I can check them, I can look at an images of the earth from space and I can prove that it's geo-shaped, but I don't see any of these moral facts floating around. And so they seem like an invention to me. And you want to say, well, that is the case. There aren't these moral facts floating around. But nonetheless, we can have a conversation of substance when we talk about morality. And so it seems like the move that you make is say, well, that maybe it's just accept a certain convention. So there's a convention about how we describe whether you're going around the squirrel or not. And so you can say in terms of that convention, we can make certain claims. It's true that it is perfectly moral to push the fat man in front of the trolley if the convention that you adopt is utilitarian, let's say. And it's true that it's immoral to do it if the convention that you have is you can't violate people's right to life. But then the question becomes, how do we pick between these conventions? If you say there's no fact of the matter, why should I prefer one convention over the other? So my view is not that morality or ethics is conventional. I think there are objectively right answers to ethical questions. And by that, I just mean that there are answers though that are right and the rightness is independent of what any individual approves or disapproves of is independent of our conventions and so on. I think the reason why we're inclined to want to resolve disputes like squirrel by instituting a convention, right? Rather than engaging in inquiry is because it seems to us that there's nothing else that's really at stake here, right? We just want to be able to talk in a way that's going to sort of make sense to everybody so that we're all on the same page. But my view about normative ethical disputes is that even though they don't really afford representational accuracy, there's still something much more important than being on the same page at stake. Namely, there's ethical value or what I in the book call specifically ethical value at stake. And the, basically the story goes like this. So in... So the conclusions we form pursuant to normative ethical disputes are that, that they influence our affective states, they influence our actions. You basically, you want to do the right thing for the right reason. Um, and that's that kind of specifically ethical value is up for grabs in these debates, even though they're not representational, whereas there's no similar kind of value generally up for grabs in a dispute like squirrel. One that's one that's 
intuitively not representational, but also doesn't really afford anything of ethical significance. And the reason why it matters that these debates are not representational is because that's how I try to secure the independence of ethics from these other fields like metaphysics and philosophy of language or semantics, whatever you want to call it, and the independence of ethics for the kinds of arguments about what's rationally, what we're rationally committed to by engaging in agency or discourse, right? Those kinds of arguments. So the kind of quietest picture is that of ethics is that there are right answers. Usually quietists will want to say that at least some of those are stance independent or objective, but that ethics is this kind of autonomous sphere, right? That those right answers don't depend on considerations drawn from metaphysics or the philosophy of language. But that's the picture. It's not that I endorse any kind of like conventionalism about ethics. Okay. So if I understand correctly, your view is consistent with the following. Suppose that ethics doesn't represent anything real in the world and that ethics doesn't exist. So there are no moral facts. So just suppose that for a moment. I assume your view is consistent with that. It doesn't necessarily espouse that, but it's consistent with that. Now, given that, your claim is that even if that were the case, it wouldn't affect whether we can talk about ethics. It wouldn't affect whether we can have ethical discussions and disputes and debates and come up with one answer that's better than another. But now look at an analogy. So suppose I'm really into unicorns, right? So I want to chat about unicorns all day and I create the University of Unicorns. It's Unicorn Studies University. And we chat about unicorns all day and we debate what whether they have red hair or pink hair, and we say that one unicorn is better than another and one is stronger than the other and one runs faster than the other. And at some point, someone comes to us and says, but hold on, unicorns don't exist. And I say, well, that doesn't matter. I'm a unicorn quietist. So I say, well, we can still chat about unicorns. We can still debate in useful ways, which unicorn is faster or slower or has brighter or darker hair. And those debates are not in any way threatened in value by the claim that unicorns don't exist. And that seems counterintuitive. So what is the difference here between ethics and unicorns? It's a great question. Just before I say something about the unicorn dispute, you said to me, look, Andrew, your view is consistent with the claim that there are no moral facts. If by there are no moral facts, you mean nothing is right or wrong, then I disagree with that because then it seems like the claim that there are no moral facts is a claim just like within ethics. And my view is that within us, like, yes, some things are right and wrong and their rightness and wrongness is independent of our judgments, right? But if by there are no moral facts, you mean that the world does not contain irreducibly normative properties, right? It's a claim that you think of as being in metaphysics rather than ethics. Well, right. So there, I think that the existence or non-existence of these irreducibly normative properties is, is irrelevant to which, if any, ethical claims you ought to, you ought to accept. But now your question, okay, the parallel sort of move when it comes to unicorns seems obviously mistaken. So what's the difference? Well, it's because the unicorn dispute is more akin to the dispute about the socks, right? I mean, of course it involves a magical creature that the mainstream media tells us does not exist, but it's still the same kind of intuitively representational dispute. 
And then if the question is, well, getting a little bit deeper down, what's the difference? In disputes like unicorn and socks, the conclusion that you that one forms influences two things. So first of all, it influences um, uh, what you might call non-conceptual representations of the world. So it influences the way we picture the world, right? The way we sort of imagine things will sound, right? And this is a kind of representation which is it's more like the way that that photographs represent the world than the way that nonfiction books represent the world, for instance, right? And in disputes like squirrel and and trolley, the conclusions don't influence non-conceptual representations in that way, right? The way that I think that the world will look if utilitarianism is true, for instance, say the same way I think it'll look if utilitarianism ends up being false, right? But in disputes like unicorn and socks, these seem like disputes where the conclusions you form do influence the way we represent the world non-conceptually. The other thing is that in disputes like the unicorn and socks, the conclusions we form influence action, but they influence action in a particular sort of way. They, they guide our action in a way that a map guides action, right? Whereas in ethical disputes, as I said, and I think it seems I'm probably right to most people, the conclusions you form guide action, but they guide action in a way that's different than the way that a map guides action. And maybe you might think more like the way that like a shopping list guides action or like a set of instructions guides action. They don't show you the way the world is. And then you can use that to like pursue your aims, whatever they happen to be. In ethics, when you change your mind, you change what those very aims or ends are in the first place. But yeah, so that's why suppose you were to use some kind of argument like, I don't know, argument from explanatory dispensability, right? Or something like Occam's razor to, to try to show that there are, persuade me that there are no unicorns. Then I would think that unicorn discourse, insofar as you're positing these creatures, systematically misrepresents the world. Whereas I don't think systematic misrepresentation is even in the cards when it comes to the kinds of debates that get called normative ethical, like trolley or is utilitarianism true, stuff like that. So I wonder if you can sketch out an argument for why ethics should be able to sit in its own realm. If the claim is it's unlike natural facts about the world, there aren't these normative properties sitting anywhere but it can have its own language and it can lead us to certain kinds of truths. I'm interested to know how the gap gets bridged. And then I wonder about parallel value theory stuff. So when we talk about whether something is beautiful or ugly, it's not obvious that inheres into any object. It seems like a normative claim that when we say this is desirable or beautiful, when we want to say that sits in a similar realm of truth to ethics, do you bridge similar gaps? Do you say that aesthetics has its own special place? How do these things interrelate? I mean, on my view, ethical debates are of a particularly strange type in a way that I think hasn't been fully appreciated, right? They're not substantive, like ordinary debates about cabbages and kings. So they're very strange. And so it does take more of a kind of theoretical apparatus to unpack what exactly is going on. But yeah, to answer your question, so my book is again called Pragmatist Quietism. And by pragmatism, I mean the approach to inquiry where we endeavor to fundamentally guide our, our belief 
formation by evaluative sorts of considerations, right? So I mentioned that in these sorts of ethical debates like trolley and like utilitarianism and so forth, they afford what I called specifically ethical value. And you might look at that and you might think, well, like, where is this value coming from exactly? Like, how do you get this starting point that, that they afford specifically ethical value? Well, the kind of pragmatist strategy for answering that is, as I put it in the book, to turn the sort of dangling explanandum into the universal explanand. So you try to vindicate everything in a way that's fundamentally evaluative. So for example, when you think about a dispute like, like socks or unicorn, I had been before talking about representation and substantivity and so forth, but the pragmatist approach is actually to approach those disputes and say, look, not what's the case, but what should we believe? And there, I think you should be guided by what in the book called truthy values. And by truthy values, they just mean the values that like seem intuitively to be bound up with, with accurate representation of the world. Right. But the idea is still like you're not fundamentally endeavoring to represent the world correctly, fundamentally endeavoring to sort of guide your belief forming practices by evaluative considerations. It's just that in these disputes like socks and so forth, the relevant kinds of values are what I call the truthy ones. So that's the kind of pragmatist approach to inquiry generally. And I think that it forms as much of a kind of unified package as any kind of, you might call representationalist view, even like a kind of austerely naturalist one. What the pragmatist wants to say about ethics, namely, you should accept the ethical conclusions that, you know, such that doing so would yield the greatest specifically ethical value is basically the kind of thing the pragmatist wants to say to vindicate every other view or every other domain of inquiry that's worthy of vindication. So that's the kind of general strategy. If you ask, like, where's all this coming from for the pragmatist it starts with values and then you could ask where do those come from but my thought is you can raise the exact same kinds of questions for the pragmatist opponent the person i call the representationalist so for example for the representationalist certainly on at least on the internet people often make fun of these questions like what grounds the fact that this grounds the grounding of the ground and things like i mean it's, it gets made fun of but those questions if you're representational seem like the really live ones right for any of theory of truth or grounding that you could dis deploy you could ask well what makes that theory of truth or grounding correct and then you'd have to presumably appeal to itself or appeal to something else and then whatever you appeal to could be questioned in a similar way. So ultimately, I think the kind of game is trying to get a kind of philosophical world picture that's explanatorily unified. And I think that pragmatism does a really good job in this regard, but it's a kind of philosophical world picture where you're starting by kind of helping yourself to values in the way that the representationalist is starting by helping themselves to a, a conception of truth or of what there is and then just seeing what can be vindicated from there. And at least from my point of view, that is objective morality. As far as the aesthetics thing goes, I mean, that's a nice, that's a nice question. I'm not exactly sure what to say about it because I just, I haven't thought enough about aesthetics to get a sense of 
why it is that these debates matter to us. They seem to matter to us, right? I mean, I think the kind of underlying question that I'd want to answer first there is a kind of psychological one, and I'm not exactly sure how to answer it. So I can see why your view is consistent with the idea that moral debate matters, that it's action guiding, that it has an impact on our lives. But where I struggle is your notion of truth. So Mm -hmm. what would it mean on your view when I say that it is wrong to torture innocents? What would that mean? And then how would you evaluate comparative claims? So it is worse to torture innocents for fun than it is to eat a burger with beef in it, for example. Let's say that's the claim made. How would you make sense of that? Yeah, so again, very nice set of questions. So I try to construct truth in these sorts of normative ethical disputes out of this material of specifically ethical value. And there are a lot of sort of twists and turns here, but the basic idea is something like this. Look, obviously there's a difference between, on the one hand, the notion of an ethical view being a good one to hold, right? And, and on the other hand, an ethical view being true. So just for for example, like utilitarians like Sidgwick thought that utilitarianism was true, but they didn't think that utilitarianism would be the best ethical view for most people to hold because they would muck it up if they tried to directly apply it, right? But nonetheless, there does seem to be a connection. And so I try to elucidate the connection as follows. Imagine an advisor, right? Somebody giving you advice about what to do. And they were saying, do this, do that, right? They're kind of pointing you in, in, in a certain direction. So if an otherwise ideal advisor who had been sort of equipped with a certain set of ethical views, right? So you imagine somebody who's otherwise ideal, right? And then you put his a certain set of ethical views in their head and they advise you to do all and only right actions, right? Then, then those ethical views are true in this kind of lightweight sense that I have in mind. So there are a few crucial ingredients there, but basically start with these evaluative considerations and, and then I kind of construct sort of truth out of those. And in fact, that's the way that the pragmatist really would approach even disputes like socks and unicorn, right? Ones where we might think of as substantive, they would, they would start with this question, which, which answers are the ones that have the positive truthy value? And then say, well, those are the ones that I'm going to, that I'm going to call true or correct. At least the pragmatist in my sense. As for comparative claims, yeah, I mean, I think the kind of apparatus that I'm putting out there at least handles those pretty well, right? Again, I mean, I just real quick, I mean, we're, we're at the sort of point where the fact that the book has a sort of pragmatist starting point is sort of becoming really important. And so whether the whole thing collapses like a house of cards or like stands like a glorious tower, right? is I think going to depend on how pragmatism fares as a sort of general philosophical approach to inquiry, right? As compared with the opposing picture, sort of representationalism. And again, my view is that it fares well and that all of the questions that you could pose for the pragmatist, like basically skeptical worries, you keep asking why, I think the same questions arise, the questions of the same form arise for the representationalist. But hold on. So I'm not sure that's true. So in, in the case of the representation list, 
suppose you have an advisor and the advisor is telling you, well, you should do this rather than do that, or there's better reasons to do this rather than that. And you say, why? What are those reasons? And you know what the representationist says? Well, let's say he's a utilitarian. He says, well, if you do this action, it's going to cause more suffering in the world than that action. And suffering matters. So suffering is a bad thing. And so you want to minimize that. And that's why you shouldn't perform the action. That's why you shouldn't torture innocence for fun. Now, we ask the pragmatist this question and the pragmatist advises, well, the advisor will refer to suffering, right? But then we say, but what's wrong with suffering? Why is that a problem? And the supervisor says, well, there's no good or bad, exactly. There's no like objective right or wrong here, good or bad, but it just is the case that there's more suffering generated by this action than that action. And I say, well, is that an, is that a reason not to perform that action that produces more suffering? And he can't give me an answer. But the quietest pragmatist, whatever you basically, whatever you want to call me, right? I'm going to say the same things within normative ethics that the, you know, the sort of realist who's talking about like robust, irreducible normative properties is going to talk about, right? So I would say same things about what matters. I would say the same things about what's good and bad, right? I can say all of that, the same stuff within ethics, but then the question is, okay, well, how do you sort of ground or vindicate any of that? My way of grounding it is going to be of a piece with my way of grounding or vindicating domains across the board, which is going to be this evaluative way. They're going to say something about the distribution of these properties or about the reference of moral terms and so forth. And I, I should say, as I sort of intuitively see my own picture as a more attractive one for just for the following reason, it seems to me that these more traditional realists are going to sort of be guiding their ethical inquiry by considerations that seem to me to be irrelevant to fundamental ethics. So by things like theories of reference, so forth, right? I take it that most people listening to this or watching it are not prepared to change their views about how they should live their lives based on whatever new theory of like references, like coming down through the journals or something like that, or that they're not asking about the kind of criteria for like the best metaphysical reduction of values to facts and then prepare to change their ethical views on that basis. So that is to say, they don't see ethics as autonomous. And I can understand why there is this kind of longing, whatever you want to put it that way, for a foundation. But then once you see what giving it a foundation involves, you see that it involves like holding ethics hostage to these domains of inquiry, which it seems like actually quite counterintuitive to, to think that they should be afforded any kind of say. So I want to think about other ways in which people divine what's true. The one might be in the scientific realm, a scientist will have an hypothesis about something and so throws out a view and then tests it against reality. So they'll run a bunch of experiments, they'll see whether the hypothesis comes out and they might shift the hypothesis based on the experimental data that comes out. Yeah. What is this rolls in approach? So you think, okay, I've got a set of intuitions about what's right and I've got a theory and then I go and see whether my theory kind of generates results that line up with my intuitions and then I move between the two poles. 
So I go, oh, this thing's really counterintuitive. Maybe my intuitions are wrong. Maybe the theory's wrong. And it's strike this reflective equilibrium. And it seems like what you've described sort of fits in that Rawlsian camp where you're saying, look, we're not sure what's actually true. I check my intuitions. I help myself to some sort of normative stuff. And then I see how I go. Where I worry is when you have clashing intuitions. So you've helped yourself to a certain set of normative values. Someone else helps themselves to a different set of normative values. And you both say it's internally consistent. If you look at what I'm doing in terms of the actions in the world, they totally align with my intuitions. And the other guy goes, yeah, they totally align with my intuitions, but they're different intuitions and we're doing different things. How do you settle this dispute when you say they're all just in the truthiness category? There's no real fact of the matter. They're just sort of the vibe of it feels true based on the process that I've used. So let me start by just like talking a little bit of smack about the other side and then I'll say what my side has to say about it. So yeah, I mean, first of all, even when it comes to just sort of paradigmatic cases of confirming a hypothesis by looking at the world, there's a kind of question that arises about why this incoming experience should take, should be taken to confirm a certain sort of hypothesis. There you're relying on at least some, at least tacitly on some kind of theory of truth or representational accuracy, that sort of thing. And there's theories of truth are the kinds of things that are contestable, just like theories of value are. And then when it comes to ethics, for example, so like the sort of representationalist opponent, right? Controversy, you know, kind of confronts them as well, right? You can imagine two people, one who says, this is the correct theory of reference for ethical terms. This is what explains how they, why they refer to this rather than that. Somebody else says, I'm of the opposing camp in the philosophy of language, and here's the right theory of reference for ethical terms. And according to this theory, good refers to this other thing. And then you have a controversy, and then you have to, I guess, engage in philosophy of language or something to settle it. So this general kind of worry about, well, why do it this way rather than that way? I think it's going to arise for anybody. But yeah, of course, it arises for the quietist as well. And yeah, it's a commitment of quietism that because ethics is autonomous in the way that I say it is, that the answer is going to have to be one that comes from within normative ethics, right? So for example, the example I always use is of a colleague, Sergio Tenenbaum, who I think is commonly brilliant, but also I think wrong about ethics. And if I want to explain why on a certain class of ethical matters that I'm his you know, epistemic superior, right? If I'm a quietist, I'm not going to be doing it by saying, oh, it's because I'm better at unpacking concepts than he is. And here's my theory about the structure of concepts and why I would be better at unpacking that structure. I'm not going to say, oh, it's because this is the nature of irreducibly normative properties. And here's why I have a better line into those properties than he does, right? Like, I put on the sunglasses or something like that. So I'm not going to say anything like that. The answer that I'm going to give, and I actually think this is the answer that you should give, is going to be an answer that's rooted in first order normative ethics. And, and there, there are deeper and shallower answers. Like, I mean, if I try to explain why I'm more likely to be right in my intuitions by just pointing to my track record and saying, ah, look at all these intuitions I've been right about and he's been wrong, right? That's unsatisfactory. If I try to explain why I'm more likely to be right in some kind of deeper way, and maybe a way that really considers psychological differences between us and then brings the resources of normative ethics to bear on the assessment of these psychological differences, then I think it's more satisfactory. 
So just a quick follow-up. Let's say I say, all right, the truth lies within order of ethics. Now imagine you've got two different first principle values, the one's freedom and the one's dignity, okay? And you say those things are both fundamental and both really important. Now they're going to lead to a clash in terms of what you do in certain situations. So you can imagine when you're regulating speech, if someone says, well, I should be free to speak my mind. And people say, yeah, but you might hurt someone's feelings and their dignity is going to be set aside. So if you're a dignity guy, you're going to say, we are allowed to censor the speech. If you're a freedom guy, you say, no, you've got to let the guy speak. And this is when I wonder about how are you adjudicating between these values? I'm only using normative terms. I'm not referencing anything else. You've got to tell me which one is more truth-like or truthy or better. Do you have some other kind of direct explanation for it? Or you just go, I'm agnostic. I don't know. They're, either one is fine. And then I wonder which other values I can stick in there and call first order and say, well, you should respect this value instead of the other one. Yeah, well, first of all, I think one conclusion you can end up with is that the values are incommensurable, right? Or another conclusion you can end up with is it like in clashes like that, the two ways of going are, as my former supervisor, Ruth Chang would put it, roughly equal or, or on a par, right? That they can't be sort of neatly weighed such that it's, it's either the case that this is better or that's better or that they're exactly equal. So these are options that are not inconsistent with my position. And then if you wanted to see sort of how to weigh them, again, I think that one possibility is that you can come up with some kind of deep explanation for why you ought to care maybe more about one than the other. And again, because of my own ethical views, like I don't have that kind of deep explanation available. If I cared more about stuff like freedom and dignity, maybe I would, right? But that's what I'm... The other possibility is, no, you can't come up with any kind of neat explanation, but you might still want to say that there's a right, that there's a right answer to how they ought to be weighed off against each other. I mean, anybody doing normative ethics, right, has different sorts of desiderata, right, in, in kind of building a theory, right? So, so one thing, one thing I think we care about is stuff like, you know, extensional adequacy, right? You want to be calling things that seem obviously wrong, wrong. Right. You want to be calling things seem obviously permissible and so on. Right. You also care about some kind of theoretical unity. Right. And so, for example, you don't want to, you don't want to be trying to capture all of the cases through this kind of hodgepodge of different principles that don't seem to have anything to do with one another or just by saying there are no principles at all. Or at least again, I don't find that satisfactory. So it's kind of two theoretical desiderata and they have to be. They have to be somehow themselves weighed against one another and different people are going to come to different conclusions. I think you know, probably some people will say, look, I really care about maxing out on explanatory unity. So I actually don't want to accept any kind of plural values, right? Is it maybe an advantage of utilitarianism or some other kind of very unifying moral theory? You, you're speaking to a consequentialist here and a representationalist. So sympathetic with half your view the half we're not discussing but i'm sympathetic with that half so okay i think you might be making a mistake with the following argument so as i understand it this is one of the arguments you provide so you say well when the everyday man and even ethical philosophers are discussing whether a particular action is right or wrong or whether a particular event is good or bad they don't refer to metapositions and they don't refer to linguists first. So they don't first go and check out what the latest developments are in the philosophy of language and the reference of the, how moral terms refer. They don't 
look at the details of the metaphysics of and the ontology of ethics before they decide whether it's wrong to slaughter or torture innocents for fun. They just make the proclamation and they're entitled to do so. And then you conclude from that, well, it seems therefore that philosophy of language and metaphysics and ontology doesn't really have a bearing on the value and the importance of ethical debate. But now here's the error, is that there's different types of debates amongst philosophers of language and metaphysicians and ontologists. So it doesn't seem that important whether our ethical terms refer through a descriptive theory of reference or a causal theory of reference. The details don't really matter. But if philosophers of ontology or metaphysicians tomorrow prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that ethical terms do not refer to anything real in the world and are fundamentally misleading and systematically wrong in certain ways that only metaphysicians or ontologists could say, then that seems important. So the details might not matter, but the overall discussion amongst metaphysicians does seem important. So I'll give you a parallel discussion, which is important for me, and it's less facetious than the unicorn view. So my PhD was on why I don't think social phenomena exist, specifically social groups, but it extends to social phenomena broadly. So I, I don't think there are social groups. I don't think that there's countries. I don't think there's political parties, families, marriages. And that when we are talking about these entities, we are uttering claims that are fundamentally false. The same way as when we talk about witchcraft. I think that talk about social groups is similar to talk about witchcraft and all those claims are false. They're not just sort of useful. They're just, they're wrong. They're systematically wrong and fundamentally misleading. And if I were to say that, and I have said that to sociologists, they don't say to me, well, it doesn't matter whether the Democrats exist or whether the Republicans exist or whether the president exists. None of that, that doesn't matter. I'm not interested in that. We can still debate whether the Democrats will win the next election. And I say, but there are no elections. And their reaction is not, but that doesn't matter. Their reaction is, oh no, you are wrong. They definitely exist because if they didn't exist, my whole science, my whole inquiry would be fundamentally undermined. And I feel like if you were to say to ethicists, well, ethical terms have no reference, they wouldn't just say, well, you have your metaphysical debates. They'd say, well, that matters to me. Right. So let me maybe say something on behalf of the sociologists. I mean, I feel like the answer that they're giving you may not be like philosophically speaking, like the best sort of answer. I mean, I think if I were them, I would probably say something like this sort of inquiry that you're engaging in where you try to find out whether there are witches in the way that's sort of ordinarily done or whether witchcraft is real or whether phlogiston is real, whatever it is, right, is different than the sort of inquiry that or dispute that you're engaging in when you say that there are no such things as elections and no such things as social groups and so on. So it seems like in my way of putting things, I'd, I'd want to call the first sort of inquiry deep. It does afford what I'm calling truthy value. The second sort of inquiry seems to be superficial, that it doesn't afford uh, the sorts of debates that afford truthy value. So I think your mistake is in treating these kinds of disputes as though they're disputes of the same type. And so then what, why as a sociologist then would it make any sense to say you're wrong, right? As opposed to just like, okay, well, it's a superficial dispute anyway. So you say your thing, I say mine. Well, it's because 
their way of kind of carving things up into categories like class or race or party and so forth is useful for the kind of inquiry that they're trying to engage in and you not allowing them to talk in that way. I don't know how coercive you're being, right? But is robbing them, robbing them of this valuable tool. And I guess it sounds a little bit flippant, but here's maybe what kind of way of illustrating the difference. I mean, I mean, I welcome this kind of dispute, but it's like, if you think that physical phenomena are called caused by magic or witchcraft or whatever, then you're going to systematically sort of mispredict the world. The success of your actions is going to be thwarted, right? I mean, if you try to like found a company that's sort of based on the idea that witchcraft is like really doing something, you're going to lose a lot of money, right? Whereas people have gotten very rich making predictions of the sort like this party is going to win the election. This group of people is going to respond to this change either within the marketplace or within the, you know, polity in a certain way. And I just think it seems to be strange to sort of deny truth to these sorts of beliefs that not just like here and there or generally, but like in a very systematic way seem to yield accurate non-conceptual representation picturing of the world and successful action. Sorry, getting too into the sociology thing for a second, but I think I just think it's useful because it's obvious that we are approaching these things in very different ways. And so, I mean, it's an interesting debate and a whole new episode on its own because I deny a lot of that the predictive success of the social sciences. But even when there is predictive success, I'd say it's no greater than the witchcraft doctors. So, so the witch doctors they also make predictions and they root those predictions in their theories, and their theories will often get things right. Um, it just so happens they get them fundamentally wrong sometimes, but so does sociology and so does political theory. I mean, that's why just in witchcraft and these theories arose is because they do have some predictive success. But yeah, I mean, that's another debate. <laughs> I think that what's interesting is when it comes to ethics, there's no predictive success going on here. So you can't rely on that, that to stir the importance of the theory if you think it if you think ethics is a theory, but you can't bolster ethics through its predictive success in the way you can with sociology. That that's absolutely right. I think that's one reason why people have found ethics so so mysterious or uncanny, right? That you can't point to these procedures that that seem to work to verify other kinds of views. 